This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So our world is full of pain and suffering. Nearly every day, we read about horrific acts of violence and devastating natural disasters. In addition to the terrible events that fill the news, there are many hidden personal sufferings that don't make the headlines. Many of us or our loved ones suffer from physical and mental illness, financial hardship, abuse, neglect, or failed relationships. It's obvious that our world includes much suffering. And this obvious fact is the starting point of one of the oldest and most compelling arguments against the existence of God. Why, you might ask, do many people think that the existence of God is incompatible with evil? Well, if God is supposed to be all-knowing, as traditional religions say, then God would be aware of all the evil, evils happening in the world. For example, God would know about the terrorist plot before the attack, attack happened. Furthermore, if God is all-powerful, God would be able to stop all evil. An omnipotent being like God could wipe out not just terrorists, but also ailments like childhood cancer. And finally, if God is supposed to be all good, as traditional religions say, wouldn't God want to stop all the evils in our world? So if God is the sort of being who would know about all evil, be able to stop all evil, and want to stop all evil, then it follows that if there were a good God, then all evil should have been eliminated. But clearly there is evil in our world. So therefore it seems that there can't also be an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God. Variations of this argument have been put forth by philosophers and theologians for centuries in an attempt to undermine belief in God. So in our talk tonight, I want to look to the great philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas for wisdom on the question of why there's evil in the world, given that the world is a creation of a good God. So the first section of the talk, I'm going to talk about what evil is and where it comes from. So to understand Aquinas' thinking about why there's evil, we first must consider his views about what evil is and where it comes from. Aquinas' conception of what evil is, or rather what it's not, is strikingly different from how we in the modern world tend to think of evil. We today tend to identify evil with some sort of positive force that inclines human beings towards acts of malice and inclines natural entities such as tornadoes toward destruction of human life and property. In contrast with the way we tend to think about evil, the majority of ancient and medieval thinkers denied that evil was something positive. In their view, the term evil doesn't pick out some force or positive characteristic, which all the things we call bad have in common. Rather, what it means to say that something is evil or bad is that it's missing or lacking some good it ought to have. Blindness is a common example used to illustrate this point. Blindness is not some positive thing that gets added to a person's eye. Rather, blindness is a lack of sight. Let's consider another example. Consider bad cars. Think of all the ways in which a car can be bad. Bad can describe a car with, a failing, with failing brakes that skids instead of stops, or a car with a failing carburetor that delays when it's supposed to accelerate, or a bad car can be one with a body deteriorated from rust. The term bad doesn't pick out some certain positive feature that all bad cars share in common. Rather, the reason we call all those cars bad is because they're missing or lacking a proper order of functioning that a car ought to have. Cars are, of course, real, actual things, and cars are good. The badness of a bad car, however, is an absence or lacking rather than a positive feature which is added to the car. I want to share with you a quote I recently read from a young man named Morgan Bolt, who recently passed away at the age of 27 after a long, hard battle with cancer. Before his death, Morgan was working on a book called Cancer is Not Evil. The way in which Morgan speaks about cancer fits well with Aquinas' view that evil is not a positive reality. Morgan writes in the following, um, in another essay titled Living on the Edge, the following words, but cancer, in my opinion, is no more evil than weather or mountains or trees or any other part of this world that can and does kill people. As far as I'm aware, nobody claims that clouds or snowy peaks or trees are inherently evil. People may hate cancer, but that alone doesn't make it evil. Cancer may bring only suffering and death, yes, but cell division? That keeps us alive. 
It allows us to grow and heal. And what is cancer if not a hurricane of cell division? A cell division is just like any other part of this incredible dynamic world, end quote. So Morgan Bolt, from his personal experience, knew well the immense pain and suffering of living with cancer. Yet like Aquinas, he sees even cancer as something which consists of an underlying reality that is inherently good, namely cell division. Without cell division, nothing in the universe could live or adapt. But sometimes cell division is lacking a proper order or regulation. With this lack or absence, we call it cancer. The cell division is of itself good. And what is bad about it in the case of cancer is the missing order or regulation. You may now be wondering why this point about evil being a lack of goodness matters for thinking about how God relates to the evil or badness in the world. Aquinas and his medieval counterparts thought that getting the point straight that evil is a lacking rather than something positive was of utmost importance for distancing God from the causal responsibility for evil. If evil is a positive reality, then it seems that it must have been brought into existence by God, since God is the creator of everything that exists. The ancient Manichaeans tried to reject this conclusion by positing that, in addition to the good God, there was a supreme evil being who brought evil into existence. But if evil is not something positive, then it doesn't need any cause to bring it into being. Everything real is made by God, and everything real is good. Evil is a lack of good, which ought to be there. Although evil is a lack of good, there's always a cause that explains why it is that a good is removed from a particular creature at a particular time. According to Aquinas, evils that are suffered by one creature are caused by another creature seeking its own perfection. The preservation of a lion's life, for example, might involve the destruction of a lamb. Is the death of the lamb good for the lamb? Of course not. But its destruction is in fact good for the lion and for the universe as a whole. Aquinas believes that a universe with a variety of different creatures is a better representation of God's goodness than a universe with just one or a few different kinds of creatures. Each different type of creature reveals to us something unique about God's nature and goodness. But in order to have a universe with many different types of creatures, there has to be some suffering because one creature's flourishing often requires another's destruction to sustain its life. So far, so far I have been talking about evils that happen through natural causes, such as diseases that afflict our body or suffering involved in the animal food chain. What about the sinful choices that human beings make? Aquinas believed that the evil or badness of certain human actions could all also be understood as a lack of good. Aquinas thinks that whenever we act, we are seeking a good, but we can seek goods in the wrong way when we turn away from a higher good towards a lower good. For example, when a boy steals a candy bar from a convenience store, what he wants to enjoy is its pleasant taste. Enjoying pleasant taste is a good thing, but it would have been an even better thing if the boy would have refrained from the pleasure for, of eating for the sake of a higher good, such as respecting the store owner's right to his property, the boy's action of enjoying pleasure from food is in itself something good, but it's missing or lacking in ordering to the higher moral law. Acts of seeking pleasure are not in themselves evil, but they become bad actions when they're not subordinated or ordered to higher goods. Aquinas believed that God gave human beings the gift of free will. What it means to have a will is that we have the power to choose how we seek goods. It's up to us to use our minds to think about how to pursue goods in the right way so that we don't end up abandoning higher goods for the sake of lower ones. When we misuse that freedom, we can end up causing ourselves and other creatures to be deprived of goodness, which we ought to have. To summarize what we've heard so far, according to Aquinas, evil is a lack of good. In Aquinas's view, God does not directly cause evil. God causes several different kinds of good creatures, and he gives them the power to perform actions that promote their own good. It is these good creatures which God creates that cause each other to suffer losses of goodness. One creature's survival can entail the destruction of another creature. Furthermore, when human beings seek goods in a disordered way through mis misuse of freedom, they can also cause themselves and other creatures to lose goods which they ought to have.
Now we can turn to the question of how God's allowing evil in the world fits with this loving care for each individual human being. So if you look on the handout, we're going on to section two now, Aquinas and God's permission of evil and his loving care for human beings. Even if evil is a lack or absence and not something real, created or caused by God, you might be wondering, why doesn't God stop creatures from causing suffering to one another? Why doesn't God fix things right away when one creature hurts another? It is clear that in the case of the lion eating the lamb, it would not make sense for God to stop the lion or else the lion couldn't live. Some evil in nature is just a necessary condition for species to survive. So it's understandable that God wouldn't want to prevent these evils. If God wants lions to live, he has to allow their prey to suffer destruction. But what about human suffering? Our suffering and death is not necessary for another species to live. So why doesn't God prevent natural disasters and diseases from hurting us? Why doesn't he stop us from hurting each other? In Aquinas's view, it wasn't God's initial will that humans should suffer bodily death and corruption. According to Christian theology, God created the first human beings in a state called original justice. God gave to the first humans special gifts that human beings don't naturally have. Through a special gift, for the first humans' intellects had perfect command over their behavior, and they possessed every moral virtue. Their souls were so powerful in this state that they were able to prevent their bodies from suffering corruption and death. When the first humans sinned, they rejected God's rule, and with that, they also rejected the special gifts they had been given by God. With the rejection of these supernatural gifts, human beings were no longer preserved from death and physical suffering. It's natural that material bodies like ours eventually break down and corrupt. It was only through a special, special strengthening of our soul through God's power that we were spared this natural breakdown. In response to original sin, God wills human beings to have the consequences that follow from their choice to reject God's gift. This, of course, is not God's ultimate will. God also willed to send Christ into the world with the plan of reconciling human beings to himself. The important point to take away, though, is that the evil suffered by human beings is not something God allows for the sake of a good for the universe as the whole, as in the case um, of the evil suffered by the lamb when the lion eats it. Rather, our physical death and suffering is a consequence that God allows to follow from our first parents, rejection of the gifts God originally gave to our species. But bodily corruption and natural death, of course, are not the only sorts of evils humans suffer in this world. As we see in the news nearly every day, humans suffer from senseless acts of violence, horrible car accidents, abuse, and neglect. It seems that God could allow our bodies to naturally break down and die as punishment for original sin, while also ordering the universe in such a way that no children would starve to death and no acts of terror were committed. So why doesn't God providentially order the universe to save us from all the additional evil we experience beyond bodily corruption and death? Aquinas addresses this question most poignantly in his biblical commentary in the book of Job. For those who are not familiar with the story, Job was a just man who was always careful to avoid doing evil. He was very wealthy and had a large family. In the story, Satan appears before God and claims that Job has only lived an upright life because he has been so blessed with many materially good things, and he has faced so little adversity in his life to that point. Satan thinks that if Job were to experience some real suffering, he would no longer be so faithful to God. God permits Satan to test Job's virtue. In the course of the story, Job's livestock, servants, and children are all killed in quick succession, and then Job himself is afflicted with a painful illness. Job's friends hold the view that all the evils that happen to him are punishment for sin. They tell Job that he must have done something really terrible to have deserved all the suffering which he received. Throughout the story, Job maintains his innocence, and eventually he's vindicated. Aquinas' commentary on this book of the Bible provides an opportunity for him to reflect on the question of what are the reasons or causes for why innocent people suffer. Aquinas writes in his commentary on Job, and this is the first text, text one on the handout. One thing which seems most severe is that the innocent experience many adversities in this life besides the death which is common to all. 
it seems reasonable that the innocent who are not guilty of their own sins should not be afflicted with any other punishment besides the death, which is due to original sin. Doesn't it, end quote, doesn't it seem unfair that bad things often happen to good people? That's the problem that Aquinas wants to try to answer in this work. So from various passages in his commentary on Job, and along with some other works, we can piece together his response to that question of why God allows innocent people to suffer. Aquinas' basic thesis is that God allows people to suffer evils because through their experience of suffering, God can work good for them. Aquinas often repeats the following quote from St. Augustine, and this is text two on the handout. Quote, Almighty God would in no wise permit evil to exist in his works unless there were, he were so almighty and so good as to produce good even from evil, end quote. The greater good that God works from human suffering is not a good for the universe as a whole or for some higher creature in the universe. Rather, the greater good is for human beings themselves. In order to understand what sort of greater goods Aquinas has in mind, it's important to remember how he sees the goal of human life. In our modern society, we tend to think that the goal of human living is getting all those things that'll bring us pleasure and honor in this world. Delicious food, good entertainment, a prestigious job, a nice house, and perhaps even a good-looking significant other. This is how we think of the good life. Now, Aquinas doesn't deny that those things are, in fact, good. But in his view, these goods are neither necessary nor sufficient for achieving the true purpose for why we exist. Even with those worldly goods, our hearts will always desire something more. Aquinas thinks that the true satisfaction of our desires, that is our true happiness, lies in achieving a union with God that's fully consummated in the next life. In order to reach this goal, we must be transformed into the sort of people who choose to freely love and enjoy God. According to Aquinas, God at times permits suffering and trials to happen to a person because he knows that through these trials, a person will grow in the virtues that enable them to be more fully and perfectly united to God in the next life. Aquinas writes, and this is text three on the handout, quote, now it happens that God sometimes permits trials or even some spiritual defects to happen to someone to obtain their salvation, as Roman says. All things work together for the good of those who love God. In this way, God comes to a man to obtain his salvation, and yet man does not see him because he cannot perceive his kindness. End quote. Notice the last line of this quote. Aquinas points out that oftentimes we can't see the good that is happening for us through our suffering and trials. We pray to God to take away the suffering we experience. God, however, permits the suffering to continue since he sees it working for our good. The goal of God's providence is not to preserve us from earthly troubles and suffering. Rather, God's goal is to get us to heaven. Aquinas writes the following about the way in which God responds to the prayers of those who suffer. And this longer quote is text four on the handout. Quote, for God sometimes does not hear someone's prayer according to what he wishes, but according to what actually succeeds. Just like a doctor does not hear the plea of the sick man who asks him to take away the bitter medicine. If the doctor does not remove the remedy he knows to be health-inducing, he nevertheless hears the exact actual advantage of the plea of the patient because he induces the health which the sick person greatly desires. God does not take away trials from a man set down in the midst of trial, though he prays for mercy because he, that is God, knows that trials are useful to final salvation. Thus, although God truly heeds him, nevertheless, the man who is set down in the midst of miseries does not believe that he is heard. For if afflicted man should understand the reason why God afflicts him, that the afflictions are useful to his salvation, he clearly would believe that his prayer had been heard. But because he does not understand this, he does not believe that his prayer has been heard, end quote. Again, in this passage, Aquinas emphasizes that God permits humans to suffer since suffering is useful for our salvation. When a person prays for God to end a suffering and it does not stop, the person might feel that God has not heard her prayers, or even she may feel abandoned by God. 
Aquinas says, however, that the if the person were to understand the spiritual goods that are being produced through the suffering, she would realize that God is, in fact, hearing her prayer and caring for her by doing what is best for her. Aquinas thinks that we might not be able to tell when suffering is working for our ultimate good. In his view, humans are often unable to know the particular goods that come out of the particular evils which God permits. Yet Aquinas thinks that we can, at a more general level, understand how certain types of spiritual goods can emerge from experiencing certain types of evil. Here are some of the examples Aquinas gives. Through experiencing one's own weakness, one can grow in humility. Through experiencing persecution, one can grow in patience. Through being opposed, one can grow in wisdom. By being treated with animosity, one can grow in benevolence. Aquinas's point is that by being put into situations where we're tested and tried, we develop the inward dispositions needed to flourish as human beings. I want to briefly mention a modern day example of someone who personally believes that she has received great goods through her suffering. So Joni Erickson Tata is the founder and CEO of an organization called Joni and Friends, which provides support to people living with disabilities. When Joni was 17, she suffered a diving accident that left her permanently paralyzed and without the use of her hands. She wrote the following in her book, When God Weeps, quote, before my paralysis, my hands reached for a lot of the wrong things. My feet took me into some bad places. After my paralysis, tempting choices were scared down considerably. My diving accident was the beginning of a long, arduous process of becoming like Christ, end quote. She goes on to write, quote, Hardships have forced me to make decisions about God. Suffering has done a job on my character. I'm not so sloppy about relationships. I stick to promises. I'm more patient. People matter more, end quote. No one likes to suffer. But there are others like Joni who have similar stories of being transformed by their suffering into better friends, siblings, neighbors, and spouses. Why is it that suffering has the unique power to transform us into better versions of ourself? In his book, God in the World, Pope Benedict XVI describes suffering as, quote, the inner side of love, end quote. He writes, quote, anyone who really wanted to get rid of suffering would have to get rid of love before anything else, because there can be no love without suffering, because love always demands an element of self-sacrifice. Because given temperamental differences and the drama of situations, love will always bring with it renunciation and pain, end quote. In learning how to inwardly embrace suffering, we become more capable of setting aside ourselves for others. So in Pope Benedict's words, quote, it's so important to learn how to suffer, end quote. To learn how to suffer is to learn how to love. Sometimes when one person suffers and bears it well, Others receive great goods through witnessing it. Aquinas believes that scripture reveals that Job himself was permitted to suffer so that he could model for others how to bear suffering with patience. The present-day life of Immaculate Ilibagiza provides a good example about how one person's heroic response to suffering can inspire others to greater virtue. Immaculate was a college student in Rwanda when a genocide broke out against her people. For a period of several months, she hid in a 12-square-foot bathroom with seven other women. When she emerged from the bathroom, weighing just 65 pounds, she learned that nearly her entire family had been massacred. Eventually, she came face-to-face -face with the man who killed her mother and one of her brothers. Immaculate did what many of us would consider unthinkable. She visited her family's killer in prison to offer her forgiveness. Today, Immaculate speaks around the world about her experiences. Once after a talk she gave in Atlanta, she was approached by an old woman. The woman's parents were killed in the Holocaust when she was a baby. This is what the woman said to Immaculate, quote, hearing your story about what you lived through and what you were able to forgive has inspired me. I've been trying my whole life to forgive the people who killed my parents, and now I think I can do it. I can let go of my anger and be happy, end quote. This story illustrates Aquinas' thought about how suffering which is permitted to one person 
can bring great goods to others. Through the suffering allowed to Immaculate, others were given a model of heroic virtue and a heroic act of forgiveness. One might wonder whether it's really fair, though, for God to allow a person to suffer the loss of health or her family, even if this loss will lead to a greater good for the person. For example, it seems clearly wrong for me to steal my neighbor's smartphone from him, even if it might ultimately be a good thing for him to spend less time scrolling through social media on his phone. So is it unfair or unjust for God to allow us to suffer the loss of good things, even if it's for the sake of something better coming to us? In Aquinas's view, it's not unfair or unjust for God to allow us to lose the good things that we enjoy in this life. This is because when considered in relationship to God, we don't have a right to any of the good things we enjoy. All of our temporal blessings are gratuitous gifts from God. It is generous for God to give us our health, family, friends, and material prosperity. God has no moral obligation to let us keep his general gifts for the entirety of our lives. I would be wrong to steal my neighbor's phone because it's not mine and he has a right to it. But when God allows us to suffer the loss of a good, it's entirely different because every good ultimately is from God to begin with. And it's out of generosity rather than obligation that he gives these goods to us. Aquinas writes, and this is text five on the handout, quote, man does not have a just complaint with God if he should be despoiled of his temporal goods, because he who gave freely could bestow them either till the end of his life or temporarily. So when he takes temporal goods away from man before the end of life, man cannot complain, end quote. Aquinas thinks that there's nothing wrong with being sad if you lose one of the goods that God has given you. It's our nature to be delighted by goods and saddened by their loss. Aquinas notes that even Christ, according to the scripture, felt sadness. His point, however, is that at the intellectual level, we must understand that God has not done an injustice to us if he permits one of our temporal goods to be taken from us. Aquinas also notes that although God may permit a person to lose certain goods, he always gives a person what's necessary for reaching her final good, that is salvation. He writes, quote, from the day of his birth, you might help him by your providence with things necessary for his life and glorification, whether they are corporeal or spiritual, end quote. God would never allow a person to lose a physical or a spiritual good, which was truly needed for salvation. So far, we have seen Aquinas's view that God no, does no injustice by allowing a person to lose good things like family, friends, health, or wealth. As we've heard, none of us, even those of us who are very good, have a right to these gifts which God generously gives. Still, we might expect that God would somehow try to ensure that good people don't suffer these losses in a more severe way than bad people. It seems like fairness demands that the goods which God gives and takes away from people somehow corresponds with their moral characters. Aquinas's perspective on this issue, however, the issue of good people suffering, is quite different from our modern one. Aquinas doesn't find it at all surprising that bad things happen to good people. In fact, he thinks this is just what we, would, we should expect. As Aquinas sees it, God would not want to spare the best people from the hardest suffering, since through this suffering they will reap greater spiritual rewards in the next life. He thinks that God gives the most difficult tasks to the best people who are able to carry them out well. These people who suffer well, that is with patience and resignation to God's will, are in turn rewarded more. Aquinas writes the following, and this is text six on the handout. For it is clear that a general of the army does not spare the vigorous soldiers from dangers or toils, but the whole nature of warfare demands at times that he exposes them to both the very great dangers and tasks. After the victory has been won, the general honors these men more, um, these men who prove, proved more vigorous. So divine providence does not dispose things that the good are more freed from adversities and labors in this present life, but he rewards them more at the end, end quote. Just as we would not expect a coach to keep his best players on the sidelines to spare them injury, we should not expect God to spare virtuous people from hardships in this life. 
By suffering much, they will be transformed in such a way that they might be more perfectly united with God in the afterlife. Thus, by suffering much, they gain a greater reward than those who are spared from difficult trials in this life. So the final section um, on the handout, it's section three, objections to Aquinas' view and responses. As we've heard, Aquinas thinks that God permits humans to suffer for the sake of their greater spiritual good. There are several difficulties one might see with Aquinas' views. Let's examine some of them now and consider how Aquinas might respond to them. First, if it's really true that suffering brings about greater spiritual goods, you might wonder if you should remain passive when those around you are suffering. Should you help alleviate your neighbor's pain or would that be interfering since God might be using that suffering to work for her salvation? In response to such a question, we need to remember that God has commanded us to alleviate the suffering of our neighbors. Although evil can work for good, evil is still, of itself, not good for a human being. Aquinas does not think that all conceivable evils will work for a person's ultimate good. Rather, he thinks that those evils God permits are permitted by him because a greater good comes from them. God in his goodness spares us for many evils that he foresees as not contributing to our ultimate good. In the example of the suffering neighbor, your aid might be the very means God wants to use to prevent an evil he knows will not work for good. If God wants to permit an evil that we try to stop, our efforts will just be unsuccessful. We are unable to know the complicated relationships that obtain between events in this world and the spiritual state of human souls. Thus, we need to, above all, follow God's commands to aid our neighbors in need and let God sort out how the events in the world, including suffering, work for the good of human salvation. Another question one might ask about Aquinas' claim that God permits suffering for the sake of a greater good is whether it's empirically plausible. We see too many examples in the world of people who don't seem to grow stronger through their suffering. Rather, they're broken by the evil they experience and they turn their backs on God. So far as I know, Aquinas doesn't directly address these cases, but he does claim that if a person was truly just or good, God would never permit anything to happen to them which would impede their final salvation. He writes, and this is text seven, quote, God, however, extends his providence over the just in a certain more excellent way than over the wicked, inasmuch as he prevents anything happening which would impede their final salvation. For, quote, to them that love God, all things work together unto good, end quote. So it seems that there are two possibilities for the case of those who appear to turn away from God in the face of great suffering. First, it may have been the case that they were never turned toward God in the first place. Thus, their suffering did not in fact turn them away from God. The second possibility is that despite appearances, their suffering did somehow draw them toward their salvation. As outsiders, we're not in a position to judge the state of another's soul. We can never truly know how suffering is working in a person's soul and what results it might lead to in the final moments of their life. An earlier suffering in a person's life may have turned them away from God during a certain phase of their life, but it might be that also it in some way contributes to turning them back to God towards the end of their life. Lastly, one can ask why God permits humans to sin. If the goal of God's providence is to get humans to heaven, then why doesn't God order the world in such a way that no one has an opportunity to sin? If God knows that I'll choose to overeat if presented with a chocolate cake, why doesn't God arrange the world in such a way that I'm never alone with a chocolate cake? Aquinas believed that even the sins which are permitted um, for people to commit work together for the good of the just. He recognizes that people gain greater love and humility through the experience of sin and repentance. We can also learn a great deal, which helps in the future through the experience of moral failure. So even our sins can be the occasion that leads us to an even greater spiritual good. So we're at the final section, the conclusion. Now, in this talk, I've discussed some of the key points of Aquinas' thinking about God and evil. In Aquinas' view, evil is a lack of a good which should be present. It's not some positive entity created by God. God created a world of good creatures that actively interact with one another, and at times through their actions, they diminish each other's goodness. God does not prevent his creatures from acting to cause one another harm because he knows he can work a greater good out of the suffering caused by creatures. 
In the case of human beings, that good is the ultimate good of salvation. I would like to conclude with one final point from Aquinas, which is very important. Though Aquinas thought that God does not intervene to stop evil from occurring, he nevertheless did not think that God was a passive bystander to his creature's suffering. In Aquinas's view, God draws even nearer to those who suffer to provide them with the inner consolation they need to face their sufferings. He writes, and this is text eight, quote, people need to be supported in the face of evils which occur, that is to receive comfort, because unless a man had something in which his heart could rest, he would not stand firm when evils come upon him. Therefore, a person comforts another by affording him something refreshing in which he can rest in evil times. And although a man might be comforted by something and find rest and be supported in it, in the case of some evils, it is God alone who comforts us in all evils. Hence, Paul says, the God of all comfort, end quote. For good reasons, Aquinas' God does not intervene in creation to keep his creatures free from all suffering. Yet God never abandons his suffering creatures. God himself draws near to the hearts of those who are struggling to comfort them in every affliction, and he wills for us to do the same. Uh, I just had a, a question dealing with, is, uh, uh, can you comment towards what seems to be an assertion that Aquinas is saying that only certain evils are, are prevented while others he is permitting? Uh, it, it seems like a, an assertion without proof. Yeah, yeah. Um... So uh, Aquinas thinks that any evil that actually happens in the world uh, is permitted by God. But of course, we can imagine other evils that could have happened. Um, you know, like uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, it was really icy here and I, my car slid into another car. And my first thought was like, this could have been so much worse, you know. So there are things that we know are possible that don't happen in the actual world. And Aquinas thinks that things that don't happen, that those are prevented by God. So he's assuming, you know, when in this conversation, like he does have proofs elsewhere that God exists and that God um, governs the world. So by governing the world, Aquinas thinks that, um, you know, God, uh, uh, there, he, you know, kind of makes decisions about what creatures to create and what situations they're going to find themselves in. And it's through those decisions that God, um, you know, allows certain things to be realized in the world, including evils, um, and through those decisions that he prevents certain things from happening. So he doesn't, he's not thinking of prevention as, you know, God, like directly intervening in reality, like, you know, you could imagine like, like zapping, uh, you know, I don't know, a tree with lightning to get it out of the way so my car doesn't hit it or something like that. He's not thinking at all in those terms. He's thinking more like that, you know, there could have been a person who would have done, you know, evil acts, but God, you know, doesn't create him in the first place or God, um, you know, somehow orders the world so that uh, I leave my, I forget something and leave my house a little bit later. And so don't end up at the intersection at the time a car was running the stoplight. So that's kind of more what he has in mind by God preventing things. It's like through an exercise of his providence and how he like orders and creates the world. Um, I'm wondering, it was the end of your second section where you were quoting text five and you were talking about how there were certain obligations that God just didn't have to us to provide. You know, certain yeah. Lives. I'm wondering, are there any obligations that God has at all? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that it's actually very much debated even by contemporary philosophers and theologians and even scholars of Aquinas. So there are some that say, no, God has absolutely no obligations to creatures. But there is a passage in Aquinas where he says that like, if God decides to create a certain type of creature, then he does have like certain obligations, like to give it what it needs by its nature. Um, so, so it wouldn't be like, like, you know, it, like if God decides he's got, he wants to create a human, then he has to create it with like, you know, rationality and all the features that belong to humans. But um, it seems like Aquinas doesn't think that God would have an obligation, you know, to like create food and water to sustain the human being. Um, I, I mean, maybe an, another way to address the question is I, I think Aquinas would say, you know, that God 
has some obligation. Like, so for a human being, um, our kind of the ultimate goal of our existence, as I alluded to in the talk, is being united to God. And so maybe God does have some obligation if he's going to create us to like help us get to that ultimate end, you know, because that would be really like to, to, to love us and to give us like show our show his goodness to us and Aquinas thinks God creates to, you know, reflect his own goodness. But there's some things, um, you know, as I talked about in the talk that, uh, you know, we can be saved without them. Like, you know, even if you lived a really difficult life, you know, without, you know, food that you needed to survive and, you know, in a, a situation of severe neglect, like you still could reach salvation. So I think in short, he'd say God isn't obligated to give us any created goods, but he might have an obligation to give us what we need for our salvation. To Aquinas, what would an evil God look like? What would what would be some obligation or some some act that God doesn't commit where Aquinas would, would step back and say, This is this is what maybe my my opponents would think of, or maybe this this is like Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's kind of like I don't know, Aquinas probably wouldn't even like he just thinks it's so necessary to the nature of God to be good. Like that would be like a con it would be like a square circle to have an evil God. But I think like like just to help you kind of think through your question, I, I think like maybe one way to look at that. So an evil God would be one that is actively working against the salvation of humans. So a God who's like, you know, basically like how the Christian tradition thinks of Satan, like a God who's trying to entice people to sin and encourage them to, uh, uh, you know, to not love God because that's what their, their true good is. So a being that, you know, was supremely powerful and working against human salvation. So what does Thomas Aquinas say on the role of free will and the problem of evil? Yeah, so um, I think like some of the stuff in the, maybe like the first part of the, the talk would relate to this question, like in section one. So, um, you know, some of the, like, like Aquinas doesn't think that God is like directly causing, you know, much of the evils that we experience in the world, like, you know, it's, it's caused by one creature, you know, acting on another creature. And so some of those creatures are going to be beings without free will, like tornadoes, you know, destroying things. But, you know, we have free will as human beings and can commit moral actions. And our free will is going to be the source of moral evil and like the ultimate cause of moral evil. So it's not that God causes moral evil, it's caused by us. And then, you know, our sinful choices can cause like a lot of suffering. Um, you know, some people wonder about the question, could God have made free creatures who never sin? Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if it's true that, uh, you know, sin is really a free choice um, that, that's, that comes from us and not God, then, you know, like it wouldn't be entirely in God's power to make free creatures who never sin if, sin is like just part of that possibility is just part of using free will uh following following, following up on that um uh, i i struggle a little bit with the um the fact that not everyone is necessarily going to uh respond to the suffering in the way that turns them toward toward uh god and it, it was addressed. It was addressed uh, with the with the objection that you raised in, in the reply that um, if someone uh, if someone truly isn't edified by the suffering and, and at the end of life and 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 that that judgment, um, then they weren't really turned toward God in the first place. But then, but then, suffering, their suffering didn't seem to serve any purpose. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and like a lot of the contemporary discussions of the problem of evil, you know, like focus on those type cases, you know, like cases where it doesn't seem like any good comes of it. And um, I mean, I think Aquinas would say like the suffering, it was an opportunity to them that God gave them and like, you know, giving the opportunity was a good. And then also like, I think he might be committed, though, to the thesis that, you know, some good has to come from every suffering or else it just wouldn't be permitted. So it might be that the person themselves doesn't receive the good, but someone else does. So 
you know, maybe like a family member watching, you know, the situation unfold somehow would have a kind of transformation through it. So I, I'm pretty sure Aquinas would say that, um, you know, any good, any evil that God permits has to, for some human being in some way, involve a good, but it may not be for that one who undergoes the suffering. But even for them, it's an opportunity, you know, maybe a missed opportunity in some cases. But I'm sympathetic with you that that is like a hard part of the view. Is the development of, of love possible without suffering? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Some of my students uh, in one of my classes have been asking about that a lot. Um, I mean, Pope Benedict in the quote I shared in the talk seems to think so. He talks about suffering as being the inner side of love. And I guess the connection is, you know, um, when you love someone, you will their good, and oftentimes willing their good is going to involve, you know, sacrifices on their part, on, you know, on on your part to to realize their good, um, you know, just the way uh, the way situations are. Like oftentimes, meeting someone else's need, doing what's good for them, is going to involve, you know, setting yourself aside, whether it's your time. Um, you know, maybe just like your your desires, like you just don't really feel like doing it in that moment. And so uh, I would say like, probably yes, like mature, developed love, like just isn't possible without, you know, some, some suffering at some point. It might be that there are certain acts of love that don't involve suffering. So not that every act of love would involve suffering, but, you know, having that disposition where, um, you're going to love in all situations at all times, you know, some of them are going to involve suffering and, you know, learn. And so you've, we have to learn how to, how to suffer and how to um, embrace that and go through it to be able to, you know, really be in that state where we can love whatever the cost is. To follow up from a couple of questions ago, I'd like to uh, ask your uh, uh, commentary on a polemic. Um, Given that most of what we talked about has been human beings, and we talked about free will, as well as the principle of non-contradiction with God's nature, um, and, and not allowing any evil at all, since that's not anything to do with his nature, can you comment on uh, Lucifer and angelic beings deciding to, deciding to, to fall and disobey God when they don't necessarily have free will? Uh, or, or maybe they do. They do, yeah. And then also on Mary, and since she was immaculately conceived, did she actually have free will to be without sin, or was that preordained due to her nature not having original sin? Yeah, those are great, great questions. Um, so, so the traditional view on the angels is that they do have free will. Um, in some ways they're like us. So they are beings that can think and they have free will. The key way that they differ from us is that they don't have bodies. Like we're bodily creatures and they're just purely immaterial. Um, and they actually are in a much perfect, better state than we are um, for using their intellect and will. So a lot of times why we sin is because of these bodies that give us you know, desires for things and have passions in them. And Aquinas, at least also, and this is a pretty standard view um, in, Christ, in the Christian theology, that God infuses the angels at the moment of their creation with like perfect knowledge, like knowledge of, you know, kind of all the things that we learn by experience throughout our lives. So it's a great puzzle. Like, why do they sin if they're so smart and they have no passions to, you know, persuade them towards sin? And so one of the the kind of traditional accounts that gets given of angelic sin is that the first sin committed by the angels was a sin of pride that, um, you know, the angels knew that, you know, like that the highest good was to be perfectly happy and united with God. But the angels who sinned wanted to like seize that happiness for themselves and like realize it and make it happen through their own will and power rather than accepting it like as a free gift gratuitously given by God is something like, you know, that, that they can't bring about. So just imagine like, you know, it's Christmas morning and someone's there with like a huge present for you. Like you can wait for them to hand it to you and like just receive it as a gift, or you could like, you know, like just grab it out of their hands or, you know, like, you know, decide, oh, I'm not going to take the gift. I'll just go to the store and buy it for myself. So it's like something along those lines that they did, a, 
a sin of pride trying to seize the greatest good for themselves rather than accepting it as something they can't achieve and just receiving it from God. And so they do have freedom and it was an act of free will by which they committed that first sin and angels, unlike us, um, you know, we, we live our life moment by moment and, you know, we always are free at any time to turn back towards God, even after we sin to be reconciled with God, you know, if you're Catholic through the sacrament of reconciliation, um, you can just wipe away any sins that you've committed and restore that relationship with God. But yeah. angels, however, their existence is different from ours. In the first instant, they make a choice to either serve God or not serve God, you know, either to sin or obey God. And so uh, uh, they um, are just confirmed in that choice. And then they're either a fallen angel or a good angel, like after that first act of choice. Um, confirms them in their their kind of orientation of whether they're oriented towards good or evil, but then they you know can make other choices as well you know after of you know actions to do. Um, so with Mary, uh, so yes, Mary according to the Catholic teaching is uh, you know conceived without sin. So what that means was that um, you know all of us uh, through the sin of Adam and Eve. Uh, have the stain of original sin on our souls. So like, you know, Adam and Eve made this decision to go against God. And it would be like, almost like if you're born into a country that's at war with another country, like just by being born into that situation, you're at war with the other country. And that's kind of how we are. We're, you know, born into this race that had this break with God. And through baptism, we can, um, you know, kind of be be reborn and rejoin God's family again. And so Mary, uh, you know, she's the, the only the only human uh, uh, being, you know, besides you know Jesus, who uh, is conceived without being in that state of original sin. So from the moment of her conception, she, you know, has this. She's in this state of friendship and relationship with God, rather than you know being at odds with God and then needing baptism to be restored in that relationship later. Uh, and so, so Mary does certainly have free will. She's a human being and every human being by their nature has intellect and will. It's just part of being human, the human condition. Um, but she's going to have, without being stained by original sin, she's not going to have the same proclivity or tendencies towards sin um, as every other human being does. So she uh, you know, isn't going to face the same degrees maybe of temptation that human beings do or the same kinds of maybe like, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, orientation towards sin. But, you know, she does have free will. And on some level, uh, it, it like was possible for her to sin. Um, but she just she just never made that choice. Uh, and the Immaculate Conception, you know, helped her to, to use her free will. Um, you know, well, but she just also made that choice to never sin, always chose what was good in every situation. Um, this has a bit more to do with the last question than with the content of the lecture itself. Yeah. If you could speak a bit more to the origin of sin in the demon or in, in angels or in demons. Um, because I guess when we think about, and maybe this is just sort of conventional and wrong, but when we think about why human beings sin, we usually trace it back to the fact that we're tempted. Um, yeah. That there were no, there was no one to tempt the angels. How, how it's That's happened. right. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it, it is a problem. There's actually a lot of, um, in the mid middle ages, a lot of debates about how to even explain it. Like, it seems like a real puzzle, you know, how can they sin without, you know, they're, they're freed from a lot of the conditions that often lead us to sin. Um, and I don't know that I can really say more than what I said it was like, basically, you know, I mean, there are disagreements about it, but a standard account is that it was just an act of pride. Like, you know, and similarly, you could think of like, you know, themselves, they were truly good. They were good beings. And, you know, they chose themselves a lower good over God and, you know, kind of accepting his gifts as a higher good. So, um, you know, they, you know, like the, they, they, they wanted to be like, like God, like as good as God too. So, um, you know, you know, you could, think of that almost like that they were like it's sort of like a temptation you know maybe it's not attempt like so so some 
you know, some of the temptations we face are through like the activity of, you know, according to Catholic teaching, like of, um, you know, fallen angels. So there aren't like other beings like acting on them to tempt them. And they're not like, like in situations where, you know, maybe there are external things pulling on them, but like you could look at their, their own selves as like a temptation to them. Like they saw the goodness in themselves and they were tempted to turn towards themselves rather than towards God. So like in a sense, you could explain the structure of their choices, you know, a choice between two competing goods themselves or God, and they went with themselves over God. I might have misunderstood you, but I heard you say that it is not possible for God to have created free creatures without simultaneously creating a world in which moral evil exists. However, couldn't God, by his grace, have created humans who would always freely choose good? Example, a world where everyone is like the Blessed Virgin. If so, then how is that world not a better world than the one we exist in? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so like maybe in the sense of logical possibility, um, it could have been like logically possible that God, you know, did this. But I think many in the Catholic tradition would have thought that it was just, it would just be very unfitting and maybe on some level inconsistent with God's nature to create everyone like the Virgin Mary, because, um, you know, the reason that the human race has original sin, members of the human race have original sin is because of this first choice of Adam and Eve. So if you were to assume, you know, you could assume maybe, okay, maybe there's a world where Adam and Eve never sin, um, but that's up to Adam and Eve, you know, whether they sin or not. And so um, if, if that world, in fact, if Adam and Eve never would have sinned, you know, we all would have just been like born immediately into paradise in a sense we would have been like we just been in a world where it's just heaven and so the reason we don't have that world is because you know adam and eve sinned so assuming that the world starts out with you know the first creatures making the choice to sin um then it would be really odd if god decided well even though these creatures decided to sin i'm going to create all their children like still in communion with me even though they're born into you know, this family where the parents have like broken relationship with me. So then like things start to get, I think on some level, maybe inconsistent with the nature of God to like create people who are born into a state where the, you know, humans before them have turned from God to create them and, you know, without original sin. And also like, um, so Aquinas, by the way, didn't affirm the Immaculate Conception. It was debated in the medieval period, and he thought it wasn't possible for even Mary to be immaculately conceived. So we can't really like look to him on this question because he didn't think like anyone could be immaculately conceived. And his worry was just that um, someone who's immaculately conceived, he was worried was would be worried about how they would also be redeemed by Christ. So it wasn't until you know, later in the 1700s or the 1800s that the church, you know, accepted that dogma of the Immaculate Conception. Um, but so, so yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, even in the case of Mary, she still exercised free will. So like, even if God were somehow to like accept this, you know, situation that seems on some level problematic of creating everyone in the state of you know, immaculate conception, even though we have sin at the beginning of the world. It's not clear, you know, that people, who, everyone who's immaculately conceived would choose not to sin because, I mean, they'd be less inclined towards it. They wouldn't be oriented towards it. But um, I think it would always be a, poss a possibility, like Adam and Eve were, you know, created without original sin because um, original sin came, you know, after they existed for a while and they still chose to sin. So um, it's not clear that that would lead to a world with no sin in it. Suffer is for the greater good and turn people to God. So why do believers suffer too? And why do some people suffer more? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, Aqu Aquinas thinks that um, you know, in the afterlife, there are different degrees of union with God. So everybody in the afterlife will be perfectly happy and perfectly fulfilled and satisfied by the extent to which they're united to God. But 
some people will have just a greater capacity for love and union with God. And that expanding of the capacity to be united to God and love in God comes from experiencing hardships and trials in this life. So Aquinas thinks that, you know, the people who are, you know, the ones that God might, you know, um, you know, care for the most, the people who are the best oftentimes get the most trials because it's through those experiences that their soul is prepared for an even greater union and fulfillment uh, of God in the afterlife. So you could think of it almost like, like cups of water, like every cup of water will be perfectly full in the afterlife, but some cups will be bigger and holding more water. Uh, and so even believers through suffering, they can just kind of grow in these ways that allow them to love and be united to God more in the next life.